How would you like to die? As opening lines on dating apps go, it's not great. Better than, hey, or how tall are you? But still, bit of a murdery vibe. You might assume most people would never think to ask that question to a complete stranger. And you would be wrong. I know that probably says a lot about what type of guys I attract. What says even more about me is that I have an answer prepared, and they never see it coming. I want to die drowning in a flood of boiled, crystallized sugarcane extract. I'm your host, Harper Hunt, and this is Cursed Knowledge. reason you had occasion to walk around the harbor on the north end of Boston in 1919, at some point you probably would have come across a massive storage tank belonging to the Purity Distilling Company. Stored in this 50-foot-tall, 90-foot-wide tank were some 2.3 million gallons of molasses. For those having trouble imagining, 2.3 million gallons of sticky, concentrated liquid sugar That's about 130 normal residential swimming pools. Or, if comparisons to industrial disasters are your preferred unit of measurement, and they will be here in a moment, about four times as much liquid as the number six oil spill on U.S. lands or maritime territory. Ever. It was a massive structure, and the Purity Distilling Company cut corners to build it. And I mean, they cut so many corners that they made a circle. They appointed a man with no architectural or engineering experience to oversee the creation of the tank. He regularly ignored complaints from workers about the groaning noises coming from the tank. Molasses leaked so often, it was basically free for the local residents. Modern investigations confirm that the steel was half as thick as it should have been, was too brittle, and even the rivets were defective. There was literally no part of this tank that was properly put together. When it wasn't leaking onto North End sidewalks and attracting just... so many ants. The molasses was used for making booze and munitions. The molasses that was held in Purity's North End storage facility on January 15, 1919, was awaiting transport to the Purity ethanol plant. Why someone would want to ruin perfectly good molasses by turning it into alcohol is beyond me. And despite the best metagame efforts of the company in question, calling your booze brand Purity Distilling Company is an A-plus cartoon, it was beyond those who formed a tidal wave of support for Prohibition 2. Which created a bit of a sticky... Did you add this joke? What? It's a good joke! Read it! No, over my dead body. Anyway... On January 15, 1919, the 18th Amendment had already been approved. In fact, prohibition would go into effect the very next day, January 16th. But there was a year-long grace period that Purity planned to exploit. They could make as much alcohol as they wanted for one more year. And they needed a lot of molasses to make that happen. 
So in preparation, they filled their massive tank to capacity. They were still adding more molasses on January 15th, when the temperatures in Boston rose quickly after several days of frigid temperatures. A recent transfer of molasses into the main tank meant that the cold molasses already present was mixing with warm new molasses. This, along with the quick rise in temperature and a buildup of carbon dioxide from some premature fermentation led to the expansion of the molasses, putting additional stress on the already weakened hull. To put it in simpler terms, the tank burst. Witnesses said they felt the ground shake and heard a bang like a clap of thunder. The streets were flooded by a roaring wave of molasses, 25 feet tall at its peak and surging away from the ruptured tank at 35 miles per hour. The steel beams of the tank were pushed into the elevated train line so hard they damaged the tracks and almost tipped a car off the rails. In its wake, the wave left streets filled with two to three feet of molasses. It also left 21 people dead and 150 injured. The oldest was 78 and the youngest was 10. All joking aside, the event that would become known as the Boston Molassacre provided several horrible ways to die. Molasses is 40 to 50% denser than water. This meant that for those close to the rupture, they would have been hit by a force far greater than a comparable wave of water, more than enough force to crush bone into powder. Imagine a 25-foot golden brown wave barreling towards you faster than you could run with every bit of the force of a freight train behind it. For the next group out from the epicenter, the force of the wave subsided somewhat. Unfortunately, the viscosity of the previously warmed molasses was starting to rise as it spread and its temperature fell in the chill of a Boston winter. Its force was still enough to knock you over, though without causing any major concussive injuries. But the molasses was now so viscous that it was nearly impossible for anyone trapped inside to move, to breathe. Reports of the tragedy say that it was hard to see if the struggling form was human or animal. Everything was glazed over, like a donut. Because, well, molasses is sticky, anyone who has small children is painfully aware of how sticky it is. And it gets everywhere. Once someone was swallowed up by the wave, that stickiness made it incredibly difficult to escape. Much like quicksand, the molasses would pull people back in when they tried to get out. The more they struggled, the worse it became. If you managed to escape the wave, you were still at risk from the debris that was carried along by the flood. Some were unable to escape the wave at all. Instead, they were carried out to sea for their bodies to be found some months later, having been drowned in a very boring and ordinary way in the waters of the Boston Harbor. If you were lucky enough to extract yourself, you may still have inhaled molasses. Life pro tip. Getting water in your lungs is bad. Getting molasses in your lungs is worse. Needless to say, coughing fits were a common best-case scenario for many afflicted by the event. When help finally arrived, there was little they could do without putting themselves at risk. There were so many injured that the first responders had to make a makeshift hospital. They searched through waist-high molasses for four days before calling off the search. As you can expect, the cleanup was... Well, a mess. It's hard enough to get molasses off a table or a shirt, never mind out of cobblestone streets and train cars. 
They sprayed salt water from a fireboat and used sand to absorb what remained. The cleanup took weeks, and the harbor was brown with molasses for months. Between the cleanup crews, locals, and tourists tracking molasses through the city, it was reported that everything a Bostonian touched was sticky. And locals said for years on that on hot days they could still smell molasses. Which, as it happens, is the final line from the book in which I first learned about the Boston Molassacre, or as it's referred to more technically, the Great Molasses Flood. A children's book. It had a hand-drawn style with bright colors leaping off the page. The story featured a young girl as she explored the city of Boston and watched as a wave of molasses went by her window. It was silly and irreverent. It wasn't until a few years later, while on an incredibly basic tour of Boston, that I learned the molasses flood actually happened, and the tragedy that it actually was. Now, as objectively cursed as it is to imagine someone getting their chest caved in by a wave of a partially fermented reduction of sugarcane, traveling at roughly eight times the velocity of the average surface-level gravity wave of water, I'm guessing many of you know the story already. Drunk History did it in 2016. Other podcasts have discussed it. So what's the cursed knowledge? This was a tragedy. Honestly, I feel like anything that makes you Google, does partially fermented molasses have embalming qualities, qualifies as a tragedy. And not just because I'm now on another FBI list. And I'm joking with you about it. I read about it in a colorful, delightful little children's book. I use it as a response to satirize a bad pickup line. For God's sake, Boston has a duck tour vehicle named the Molly Molasses. How do you think Molly died? Was she impaled on a shard from the ruptured vessel? Did the goo created when she was liquefied between a wave of molasses and a brick wall merge into the molasses saltwater solution or remain separate? Did she slowly tread water with sticky lethargic limbs in Boston Harbor until pneumonia and exhaustion had at last defeated her resolve? Well, buy a ticket and find out. The cursed knowledge here isn't that I've got you wondering whether being submerged in molasses would be more appropriately characterized as suffocation or drowning. The cursed knowledge is that the lessons of history, the lessons we tell about what something means, are as much the result of the missionaries who want to tell a story as they are about the event. I don't mean just in a history is written by the victors sense. I mean that the entire context of every historical event and its meaning is always up for framing. And when there is no one to frame a tragedy as being about something bigger, death can be, well, hilarious to us. What's more, that can be true even when we are talking about a way of dying that is intensely mimetic for humans. Death trapped in tar? That has to be one of the three or four most early imprinted social memes on early man. So what comes to mind when you think of a tragedy? Do you conjure images of burning lava, surprise explosions, and ash clouds like Pompeii? What about icebergs, frigid water, and Celine Dion like the Titanic? Oh, come on, definitely the blinding smog, paralyzed city, and unbreathable air from the great smog of London. Okay, probably not so much the last one. 
Tragedies like Pompeii and the Titanic are remembered because they had missionaries to tell us what they meant, what they were really about. Pompeii was written about first by the historian Pliny the Younger, after his uncle Pliny the Elder died trying to rescue survivors. Don't think about Roman names too much. I promise it'll only hurt. But Pliny's connection to the event and the importance of his writing in defining what we know of as Roman history ensured that Pompeii as a city, and most importantly as a tragedy, lived on. It's now an extremely popular tourist destination for anyone visiting southern Italy and is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's one of the most perfectly preserved examples of a Roman city and daily Roman life for people who weren't rich and powerful. Most importantly, it's where we can see Roman graffiti and curses. It's a story of Rome writ small, and a memento mori story of a culture whose story to us is one big memento mori. For the Titanic, the newspapers immediately latched on to the story that the unsinkable ship had indeed sunk on her maiden voyage. Survivors told their stories to anyone who would listen. One of the most famous and high-grossing films of all time takes place on the Titanic. James Cameron alone made the Titanic a common pop culture reference, and he was by no means the first. In 1912, the year of the disaster, there were three movies made about the event. One was written by and starred Dorothy Gibson, a survivor who wore the same clothes in the film that she did when she survived the ship. It was released 29 days after the ship sank. And all of this had real-world implications. Before the Titanic sank, Boats weren't required to have enough lifeboats to evacuate everyone on board. Once the Titanic sank and hundreds died because there weren't enough lifeboats, and more importantly, once artists and historians made sure the event was about the irresponsibility and hubris of its design, it gained enough international attention that the safety requirements changed. An organization was created to monitor the location of large icebergs. Missionaries told us what history was about, and the world listened. But no one was talking about the Great Smog of London. It's not taught in high school history classes and isn't glibly referenced in cartoons and mass media. And it really should be more well-known than the other two examples. It's the most recent, happened in 1952. It lasted the longest. The city was covered in smog for four days. And it had the highest death toll, 12,000. The reality behind this tragedy is that pollution in London was so bad that December, a yellow-black cloud of smog coated the city and didn't leave. People couldn't see and maneuvering became a life-threatening task. Public transportation and even ambulance services were completely suspended. There was no grand moment of panic, but when the smog cleared, over 4,000 people were dead from respiratory problems. Twice that number died in the coming months from complications. So why isn't this remembered outside of a random episode of The Crown? Why isn't the Malassacre remembered outside of jokes on a Comedy Central sketch show? Why don't these tragedies evoke feelings of anger and awe? 
why don't they deserve B-list movies? Because unlike Pompeii, the Titanic, and a few others we do remember, there wasn't a missionary there to tell us what they really meant. And 100 years later, well, in the absence of a greater meeting imposed on it, a flood of molasses does sound really, really funny. Especially when you give it the name Molassacre. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Quite the contrary. But isn't it at least a little bit cursed to know that when we are neither told how to think about a tragedy or personally affected by it, humans often find death funny? I hope you learned something new. And remember, the real curse is sharing this information with your friends, family, and unsuspecting co-workers. If you enjoyed this production, like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And please, tell us some of your most cursed knowledge by joining us on the forums at epsilontheory.com. In the 13th century, Genghis Khan killed so many people, it lowered the carbon dioxide levels of the Earth.